go to thecognitiverampage.com. Keep fueling the change. Help continue to allow this to happen. None of this would happen without you and your love and your support. Love you. The Cognitive Rampage, a scientific approach to self-discovery, change, and life optimization, is now available on Amazon. What I do in the book is I fuse the latest research from the cognitive, behavioral, social, environmental, and biological sciences. It's not just motivational fluff and wordplay. Now, I do talk about my own story, so there's some kind of inspiration in there, but I'm not just spinning words and hyping you up with motivational fluff. Whether you need a life change, simply enjoy self-exploration and optimization, want to discover new hidden passions, or reduce the life-altering effects of toil, anxiety, depression, all of those issues, this book is for you. This book is not a cookie-cutter method of steps to follow. You'll customize the scientific framework with your own personal beliefs to build your authentic change. That way you assimilate it faster. It's not just copying my beliefs and telling you step one, step two. These will come from your beliefs as how you extend and build the foundation upon this framework. You'll use this framework throughout your whole life, through every change, and through every age. These are not empty words of motivational spin. This book is an experience. The Cognitive Rampage is based in science and is built from your beliefs. It's a path to help you unleash your desired change. You can apply this method on your own with no harmful side effects. Welcome to Cognitive Rampage Podcast. Hope you're taking care of you. Hope you're living your Cognitive Rampage. Looks like we're going to be going live from now on from Facebook. Hopefully you're watching now. Double check and see if everything's working, but uh, I think so. It appears we're live and rolling, so before I get going, a lot of times I like to work out the technical difficulties to make sure uh, we're flowing good, and I appreciate that. So tonight's a little different for me in this podcast. This one may sound or have some remnants of a great podcaster and well he wouldn't call himself an historian but I would Mr. Dan Carlin he's an amazing mentor to me and has been for a long time if you're a fan of Dan Carlin and a couple of his shows and all of the extensive work he put in prior to those podcasts then you may see where some of that cadence comes from He dives so deep into history that sometimes I get lost listening to it, and I've been told recently, I guess, that I am somewhat of a storyteller, and, well, I'll take that. So I figured, you know, I've been around talking for about four or five years now on podcasts from Joe Rogan to this podcast to a lot of other great shows out there about what I call chemical incarceration. I talk about the mental health process. And I found I also talk extensively about the history. I'm fascinated by the history of mental health and psychology. I really am. I won't forget one of my first classes about the history of mental health and learning and some of the things I'm going to share here with you today. I've been doing my research along the way trying to check this off or check that off to make sure, well, I get it right. I'll get a few things wrong, I'm sure, as I'm talking and I go off on my cognitive rampage tonight. If I even finish this, this is why I labeled it part one. But hopefully you can fact check me and look up some things. But the truth is I'm not Dan Carlin, and the truth is I tend to freestyle what I do. I pull some research and things and, well, make a story out of it, really. And tonight I guess I'm going to tell you the story of the history of mental health. Now, the history of mental health is a young one. I labeled this one from deinstitutionalization to chemical incarceration. If you're a fan of the cognitive rampage or you've been listening since, I've talked and coined this term chemical incarceration. Now, it's a loose term that can be subjectively skewed many ways. But for the most part, what I'm referring to is the front line of treatment for mental health as being, well, pill form. Sure, we talk about diet and exercise and these things, but for the most part, let's face it, pills is what you receive when you go to the doctor. And it doesn't matter if that doctor is a PhD, a PsyD, or a physician. You see, before I get into the history, I'm going to bring you 
some of the present and what's happening. I labeled the first topic of this as psychologists are falling to the dark side. And I get it, and I know why. You see, psychologists now are pushing, and a lot of places have the right to prescribe narcotics and are trying to get that and believe they should. Well, I understand that some pills and certain things are work, and they're okay. There's outliers to these things, but I've listened to a few psychologists on a few podcasts talk about how and why psychologists should be the ones prescribing. And, well, I would happen to agree with you, truthfully. See, I have a problem with physicians prescribing mental health medication. I claim that, well, they're practicing outside of their scope of practice. They don't have psychology courses. They sure enough don't do a full biopsychosocial intake. They talk to you for a few minutes, encourage you to get counseling, and then write you a prescription for Zoloft or Paxil or, well, pick one. This is the front line of treatment. So as I've listened to psychologists make the case that they should, too, be prescribing, I, too, say, well, I would agree. The most trained and uh, extensive, I would agree. See, the problem is it's not like the physicians are going to stop prescribing either. So what really becomes a psychologist prescribing is, well, another person prescribing or over-prescribing. Now, I get it. More than likely, you'll be more lenient than MDs will be, than many psychiatrists. This is the claim, right? So believe you, you say. We won't prescribe as quickly. Believe you, you say. We won't abuse the system. We trusted our physicians, and, well, they're cornered too, but this isn't about their sob story. So now... We have psychologists adding to the chemical incarceration setup. Now what this chemical incarceration alludes to is the medical model of treatment. And I've talked about this Florida medical model of treatment for a long time. It's where the issue started. And we'll get to that part later in the present because I want to take you back. I want to take you back to 872. That's right, 872. See, a lot of people talk about mental health and psychology being new. Well, in 872, there were European travelers, and they visited Islamic countries and lands, and anyway, they observed how in the Islamic world, their so-called lunatics, this word was be, being used then, well, were well cared for. They weren't discarded and thrown to the side, and these Europeans wrote about how in wonderment and awe they were of how this was happening. Ahmad ibn Tulun, in 872 in Cairo, actually had the first mental health asylum and, believe it or not, used music therapy. So the idea of hospitals or asylums is nothing new. It's something that's been around a long time. So from this idea... In Cairo sprung up all kinds of ideas. Hospitals took on various forms, if you will, monasteries. Something I found real interesting is all throughout Europe in this time also were things called fool's towers. A lot of times the so-called mad people, well, if they were left in jail with other people, well, everyone turned mad. So they started removing these so-called lunatics and mad patients from the jails and they put them in jails outside. Well, many times... People that were experienced or disturbed mental health-wise would howl at the moon. And across Europe, they built these giant towers, and you would stand in these towers, and they would place them in these towers, and they would howl at the moon. The Fool's Tower. little part of where the werewolf also begins. But we're not talking about that now. So as these Fool's Towers took on various forms, monasteries became havens for the mentally ill. Well, we know what the answer is for the mentally ill at monasteries, don't we? And I'll talk more about how that stayed the practice for most of the time from 872 on. The Parisians, they had separate cells as well that they would put outside of the morgue. Hotel Dio, they would call it. 
Well, in 1285, fast forward now, because this stayed the treatment, lock them up, throw them away, and, well, you may find some resemblance to this as we tell the rest of this story tonight. In 1285, a legal case regarding linking the ingestion of the devil, and I quote, with being mad. This is the Roe vs. Wade, if you will, of 1285, of what separated and made someone mad. See, at the time, it was mostly believed it was spiritual, that you had been possessed. Now, Greek and Roman people and philosophers had studied the idea of different fluids in the body, different color fluids. Now, this at the time was the closest we had ever gotten, really, to talking about dopamine or serotonin. And Well, we'll get to that uh, reality in just a moment about the research that is or doesn't exist about whether that has to do with depression. But anyway, the Greek and Romans, well, they had philosophy and science, also foundations that begin to lead to this. When you really think about it, with monasteries as asylums, as treating those to believe severely mentally ill, religion, philosophy, and science are the foundations of psychology. Back to the case, 1285, now, this was linked to a group of knights where a knight had gone mad and done some atrocities. This legal case was tried, and by the end, they had believed that, well, this knight had simply ingested the devil. This lays the foundation of what treatment, if you want to call it that, is then, is then provided for those lunatics, for the mad, for the insane, Believe it or not, this stays the treatment to about the 1600s, and you start to see the asylum show up. Now, where you get all these nightmares and horror stories and the idea of the crazy house and padded rooms, well, these are true stories. This happened to people. As asylums grew, so did the mistreatment. More and more people were dropped off at asylums. Well, and most were not even mentally ill. Many just simply could not make it in society, could not live up to the standards, or were burdens to family members, and many times were dropped off. And these asylums were funded by governments. A giant burden to governments. But at the time, all of this was then removed. You didn't see ideas of depression, madness, is all you heard. People were just locked away and out of sight, out of mind. Believe it or not, in the 1600s and 1700s, as you may know, exorcism was, well, still the line of treatment. Even lobotomies. Holes in the head. Electric shock therapy. You're beginning to see an emergence of that again, by the way, on lower levels, but at the time of these asylums being created, the treatments were getting ghastly based in pseudoscience and ideas and mad scientists, if you will. Trying anything and everything. People were left for dead, for mad, for insane. What I'll do, as I tell some more of this story, is correlate as we get longer into this, why we begin to see the emergence of certain disorders as well as homelessness issues. We're going to connect that later. This all starts long before 1963, long before 1942, and actual deinstitutionalization beginning. We're going to get there. We're still early. See, in the 16 and 1700s, if you were homeless, well then, at the time, it was believed that, well, God just did not grace you. You were not blessed. You were evil or possessed. Exorcisms, again being outcast from families. This begins the treatment, if you will. This sets the stage. Out of sight, out of mind becomes, well, the way to treat and help really to forget and so people could move on. So as people perform exorcisms and God knows what else in asylums, life went on. In the 1800s, the Enlightenment period begins. Industrial Revolution hits in 1820. Now, the Enlightenment era, 
Well, it was being brought to light, if you will, because all of these ghastly deeds were, well, being outed at these asylums. The Enlightenment era also consisted of the time, well, psychopharmaceutical begins to make its emergence. That people could actually be treated, not within the asylum, but in home. Later in the 19th, I'd say about 19, I can't remember exactly the report, but later in the 20th century, what you start to get is a more research on how taking people that are severely mentally ill, schizophrenic, bipolar, etc., and placing those people in normal so-called environments, well, they tend to operate better, and some of this research will support that later. Well, at the time, it was weighing down budgets, if you will. The Enlightenment era begins, and the belief that, well, we can treat people with these pills and at home. Asylum still grew. In Britain, you started uh, to see the emergence of... The National Health Institute started to focus more on mental health, but still the asylum stood and how we treated people at the most part was still locking them up. Most of this is happening, by the way, in Great Britain. Industrial Revolution, again, 1820 begins over here. And, well, you have the move from the farmer into the city. Well, the farmer moves into the city lacking skills. They walk the streets. And, well, this is where panhandling has its roots. And in 1850 is when we recorded the first homelessness population. Jails become shelters. And in 1879, the first Ph.D. in psychology was awarded from Harvard to G. Stanley Hall. William Wundt, Wundt, I say it wrong many times, forgive me. I will do this much on the history. I'll do my best. But at the same time of rewarding the first Ph.D. in psychology, William Wundt opens the first psychotic experimental laboratory in Germany, which also led to more asylums. 1879, when you really play it back, these asylums are starting to fill up, pack up. Well, what happens with that comes abuse. Now what also, many people don't know, which I want to help you correlate when we talk about the past and then when we move this into the chemical incarceration phase, if you will. I want you to draw correlations here. We've talked about how jails jails have become shelters, right? Panhandling, homelessness issues have happened. Well, what else is happening at the same time is you have serious, serious issues with PTSD and war veterans from the Civil War on back. A giant, massive opiate epidemic begins. Imagine that. An opiate epidemic. 1850, 1870. It goes on. And what you could actually do, see, morphine was, well, easy to get. You could even order it from a catalog. So what you started to see were housewives addicted to the same opiate issue. Does this sound familiar? Veterans, struck with PTSD, out of work, homeless and on the street, and you have an opiate epidemic at the same time of the Enlightenment era, about the time we think we can treat people with medications, well, that really just may sedate them and remove them from the environment that, well, you said they get better in. You could order it from a catalog. Think of the PTSD from the issues from the types of wars that we were going through at the time. How it's all connected. Where treatment really starts to pick up. Where it actually becomes treatment or where it becomes abandonment. Asylums heavily became abandonment. A quick side note. There is a asylum here in Pine Hills where I was born called Sunnyland. And as a kid we used to sneak in there because it had been closed down for many decades and we'd sneak in and I have to tell you it was one of the eeriest places I had ever been in some of these asylums in Europe were monstrosities they were giant Victorian places and corridors longer than you could even see creepy places where you could get lost you could even walk around the whole grounds you would just disappear and it was a locked door facility there's no leaving once dropped off you were well locked in and there's all kinds of stories out there from old old nurse techs that used to work in there 
psychiatry assistants, even psychiatrists that are talking about what it was really like back then. So this proceeds. It continues. We continue to treat and dose people with medications. Asylums are still filling up. We're recognizing it more now, but they're still filling up. The atrocities are being revealed. The medications start to put people in sedated places, flat affects. One of the treatments that was even admitted back then was called a penicillin coma treatment. And many times they would just fill the patient up with penicillin till the blood sugar would drop and, well, induce the coma, and this was believed to be good for the brain. A couple hundred people died until they realized that doesn't work. You see, I have to talk about how nasty these asylums really were. Because as I talk about the treatment that we provide now, the front line of treatment, well, it starts to make uh, what we have now not so bad. But I'm going to talk pretty poorly about the Florida medical model of treatment, a.k.a. chemical incarceration that has spread across this country. Something you can go back and watch, something I meant to bring up on Joe Rogan's show. You see, Joe Rogan was uninformed about what was actually happening and going down. It's because the Florida medical model started it. And then the state saw how rich the state of Florida became. They adapted this medical model of treatment, this chemical incarceration process, which is why I used to say chemical incarceration addicted to the process. And this spread across the states till eventually it reached California about 2013 to 15. Around there. That's why the all-knowing Joe didn't know. But we have to remember what it was really like with asylums. You see, so many people discard what I may be saying on the cognitive rampage or have said before until something I'm talking about happens to you or close to you, till addiction hits home, till depression, anxiety, suicide, and PTSD hits home. And then all of a sudden we start looking for solutions. That's why you see politicians that may be anti-cannabis for a while until, well, their son has MS. And then people tend to change rather quickly. So when I look at the system today that we provide, the front line of treatment, well, my argument here would be, what has changed? We have an opiate epidemic, if you will. Kids are opening the medicine cabinets now and finding themselves addicted and then out of rehabs for a lifetime, convinced they have a disease. Well, see, the change from the history that I see is we convinced them they used to have a demon. Well, that wasn't their fault either, I guess. We had veterans home where they had just fought a war on their own land, killing family members. This is just 1850 people. See, the question you may ask yourself or ask me as this podcast goes on is, well, what do we do with them? And what I meant by when it hit home or hits home for you is, well, you will ask that question, what do I do? You'll reach out to a friend. You'll call your doctor, maybe your counselor. What do I do? And the ultimate answer becomes what? Lock them away for 30 to 60 days or whatever the insurance will pay for. seems eerily similar to asylums just on a short, financed stunt. But they typically come back. You see, in asylums back then, well, they typically never left. We have been reactive in nature. We discard psychology and we fill it with science first, because it must be the answer. Well, they've been drilling holes in heads and shocking the hell out of brains for a long time. They've been feeding people pills on the front line for a long time. So play it forward from 1850 on. This becomes how we treat people. Eventually, there are some bright spots along the way that start to link it to some more medical causes, hopefully. And mind you, 
get deep on the research that suggests that dopamine and serotonin has been proven to be linked to depression and other things. Perhaps another lobotomy over time, or a slower one. So it moves forward all the way, 19, 1920s. More issues happen, more wars come, more PTSD, more opiate issues, and more inventions of psychotropic medications than you've ever seen. Made a candy store look weak. It all just poured down. Then it started to get political eventually, around 1943. Till it winds up being Mr. JFK, right? That's who it was. Way back. It sounds good though, right? This is the conundrum that I think he found himself in, right? We know the issues associated with asylums, what's happening. Some minor research has been presented that, well, they fare better in a natural environment as opposed to locked up. Now, some asylums along the way did take heed to some of that research early. About 1920 or so, uh, they start changing the look of asylums. They actually put up pictures, create activities, because a life in an asylum was, well, rather dull until then. So they took some of that research and tried to apply it to the inside of these asylums. Well, JFK decides to say, hey, these are bad places, right? we got to save the people. Mind you, it also happened to be a gigantic financial burden to the government at the same time. So the plan is then to deinstitutionalize. This means let people go. Open the doors and, well, let them walk out. Sounds insane, doesn't it? Because for the most part, it really is. It's amazing the number of patients that were just released, severely psychotic patients, let go based on the idea that they, well, could be taken better care of at home. Now, this is where it entwines with the future for me because I, too, adhere to this idea of treating treating the person at home within their real environment, with what they live in. But there are those that cannot be treated at least not presently. So as we release people, you start to see a rise. You start to see a rise in homelessness, violence, and many other things. In 1955, the number peaked to 5,000, excuse me, 558,000 patients just below 1% of the population. If that percentage of population were institutionalized today, that would be 750,000 mentally ill people were released. That's more than the population of Baltimore and San Francisco. Between 1955 and 1994, roughly 487,000 mentally ill patients were discharged from state hospitals. That lowered the number to only 72,000 patients. States closed most of their hospitals. That permanently reduced availability of long-term inpatient facilities. By 2010, there were 43,000 psychiatric beds available. That's it. This equates to about 14 beds per 100,000 people. This was the same ratio as it was in 1850. As a result of this implication, 2.2 million of the severely mentally ill do not receive any psychiatric treatment at all. About 200 of those who suffer from schizophrenia or bipolar disorder are homeless. That's one-third of the total homeless population. Think about that. One in three people that you see homeless are severely mentally ill, forgotten, abandoned, left on the side. I love the line that, I think his name is, oh, I wish I knew the little guy from uh, Game of Thrones. And he walks by the princess and she looks down and kind of scoffs at a homeless person. And he stops and he says, the reason that we 
look down upon those people and try to ignore them is because they remind us of who we really are. Beneath the perfume, beneath the clothes, it's who we really are. That line really puts that in perspective if, well, mental health has hit home for you. About 200,000 of those who suffer from schizophrenia or bipolar disorder are homeless. I wanted to repeat that. One in three. Ten percent are veterans who suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder or other related mental health issues. More than 300,000 are in jails or prisons. This means 16% of all inmates are severely mentally ill. There were about 100,000 psychiatric beds in both public and private hospitals. That means there are more than three times as many seriously mental ill people in jails and prisons than hospitals. Now, as I agree with history of asylums and their torture of people, I would agree, but what's happened now, without the intake, without the care or concern of those that seriously are severely mentally ill, there was more involved with deinstitutionalization. Three social and scientific changes occurred that caused the deinstitutionalization. First, the development of psychiatric drugs, as I mentioned before, to treat many of the symptoms of mental illness. These included uh, clozapine. They were actually using, like I said before, penicillin. Second, society accepted that men mentally ill needed to be treated instead of locked away. Now, this is something I can agree with, right? So at the time, if I'm alive and it's happening, I'm going, yes, I would agree with this. Now I look at this now. And what we have now, what people are left with, they're left with the pills in their same environment. Third, federal funding, such as Medicaid and Medicare, went toward community mental health centers instead of mental hospitals. Now, this sounds good on paper now, just like I said on Rogan's Place, as the asylums closed down, the pill mills got closed down, but they kept the white coat on, and they moved in to dual diagnostic, dual diagnostic facilities. That's where you go with an addiction issue that's also comorbid with a mental health issue. That's where they snuck into, if you will. That's what I talked about extensively on Joe Rogan is that little ripoff. So the brief history rundown is 1946, Congress passed the National Mental Health Act. It created the National Institute of Mental Health in 1949. The Institute researched ways to treat mental health in the community. This is where the research came from that eventually, well, caused the deinstitutionalization. The Food and Drug Administration approved many, many psychotic antipsychotic medications. This became the front line of treatment. So even through deinstitutionalization, it can you can realize that, well, when I say chemical incarceration is the front line of treatment is because we greet pre people with the front line of treatment with pills and chemicals. The only other treatments at the time, again, we spoke about were the electric Electric shock, shock therapy, you're seeing that actually rise now. Uh, at the University of Florida, there was some research done on um, electromagnetic, uh, electromagnetic therapy and depression mixed with small shocks and jolts to the brain. But what they were finding is they would find a, um, well, statistical reasonable change or influence or help with the shock therapy, but the issue is it doesn't last. It would be a matter of a couple weeks or months, and what well, repetitive shocks to the brain, well, we don't want to do that. 1955, the number of patients in public mental health hospitals reached a record of 558,000. They suffered from schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and severe depression. Many had organic brain diseases such as dementia, brain damage from trauma. Others suffered mental retardation combined with psychosis, autism, and brain damage from drug addiction. Most patients were not expected to get better given the treatments at the time. Congress passed the Mental Health Act's like I, like I mentioned before, in 1955. It established a joint commission of mental health illness and health to evaluate the nation's mental health situation. 1961, the commission published its findings in the Action for Mental Health. It recommended that community health centers be set up to treat those with less severe mental illness. Its research estimated that 20% of the population suffered a form of mental illness and distress. 20% of 350 million today. Recognition and prevention of major mental and substance use disorders became a focus. 
I would totally disagree. It became a focus of how we can continue, can, can continue to treat it with pills. Abuses about mental health hospitals in 1962 again became to get pretty public, as I mentioned before. And in 1963, JFK signed the Community Mental Health Centers Construction Act and provided federal funding to create community-based mental health facilities that would provide prevention, early treatment, and ongoing care. The, the goal was to build one per every 125,000 to 250,000 people. Too many centers would allow patients to remain close to their families and integrated and help reintegrate into society. But it ignored statistic that sh statistics that showed 75% of those in hospitals had no families. So, remember, these are the forgotten, the abandoned, those that have been cast aside already. So what we're showing is community mental health is good when a support system is present. 75% of people going through that have no support system. I would venture to say that's about the same amount of people today experiencing in and out of rehabs or caught in chemical incarceration as lacking that support on the back end. See, it sounds good, right? Sounds to me like a societal sickness more than anything. In 1975, you may remember the movie, The One That Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, right? Mr. Jack Nicholson. That movie came out and actually hurt the idea of asylums or lockdown facilities, and this was about the end of it. Only 615 community health centers had been built. This was less than half of what was needed that served the 1.9 million patients before JFK let them out. So they began to dump more money and more money into it. The system, well, fell apart. Now, with almost 2 million people that used to be in asylums, now, well, are left in the cold. 75% of those have no family to go to, nowhere to be. These are the people you see on the street. These are the homeless that you may, well, put your nose down at when I've already told you one in three of those have a mental illness that they can't do much about, even today. In 1981, the year I was born, by the way, President Reagan repealed the act through the Budget Reconciliation Act of 1981. It shifted funding to the state through block grants. The grant process meant that community mental health centers competed with other public needs. Programs like housing, food banks, and economic development often won the federal funds instead. In 1990, the Food and Drug Administration approved 123 new prescription medications, most of which were geared to treat schizophrenia and bipolar. That strengthened the prejudice against hospitalization of the mentally ill. Again, I don't want to get too far here to say that I'm a fan of asylums and locking people away, because the first thing that you're going to have is the, well, image of the asylum, right, the horror story. But these can be managed differently. But again, it's not the real environment. There is research that shows that environment helps acclimate those. Connection, you're seeing more nowadays. In 2004, now you went from 1990 to 2004, nothing had pretty much changed. Studies suggest that approximately 16% of prison and jail inmates, or roughly 320,000 people, were seriously mentally ill. That year, there were about 100,000 psychiatric beds in public and private hospitals. In other words, three times as many mentally ill people were in jail than in hospitals. In 2009, the Great Recession forced the states to cut $4.3 in mental health spending in three years. 2009. Do you remember? The mortgage crisis. Mental health gets cut. 2010, the Affordable Care Act. Well mandated that insurance companies must cover mental health care as one of the ten essential benefits that included a treatment for alcohol and drug and other substance and other substance abuse and addiction patient copays could be as high as forty dollars a session the number of therapist visits could be limited this is when insurance took control of treatment and doctors lost their control counselors lost their control the institutionalization certainly gave rights to the mentally challenged.
gave notice to those that had been forgotten and the horror stories that most of us will never hear. The levels of care back then were horrendous. I will tell you that the level of care and dual diagnosis facilities is horrendous. Some are okay, but for the most part you have bed bugs, a trashy staff. I've seen some sick things. Well, what happens to many of those that go into the helping field is they become angry. They begin to hate. Actually, there was a... Uh, old psychiatrist had quoted and was mean to his patients and said, well, if you live among trash, you eventually become trash. I noticed that as a counselor. Many seasoned counselors had turned bitter and become jaded and hated those they had signed up to help. And frankly, in such a broken system, it's hard not to. And you see people that do take advantage of those systems. So it's hard to say. Deinstitutionalization helped, right? Got people out of those places, but it put them on the street. That's why you have homelessness issues now. Because what do you do with the 70% that have no support and the one in three? This is why I say that chemical incarceration quickly leads to incarceration. Just the second to last stop on the process of treatment. The last stop is death, by the way, after they've taken all your money. You've got loans and second mortgage on the house. Still trying to save yourself, your kid, your wife, an addiction, wondering, well, I went to the doctor and they told me in the pills, and they keep flowing. Almost 60% of the United States takes a pill in the morning, in a pill at night, and I'm not talking about supplements or naturally organic things. We are a medicated society. We have been a medicated society for many, 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 many decades. See, I argue that mood modulation is simply, well, drinking or smoking or trying a drug that even as kids we spun around in the room, right? How many kids have you seen? Throw me up in the air, do it again, spin me around, fall down. They're simply wanting to modulate their mood, change their perception of the world. See, it doesn't have to be an argument over a pharmacology treatment or a holistic, environmental, naturopathy treatment. It doesn't have to be that. We can work hand in hand, but if I do look at history, and if we are to learn from history, I would say that, well, in 1850, so many United States citizens just coming out of war, hard times to live in, begin to turn to opiates and easy access of opiates. Well, what do we have now in 2018? An opiate epidemic and easy access to opiates. You damn near can order it out of a catalog. So we are stuck with what do we do? See, I'm a fan of treating the environment. But the problem is, is most don't have the support. So many have listened to me and asked and say, well, what do you, what do I do? My brother is facing addiction or my son or my daughter. And I say the first thing you don't do is lock them away in an asylum for 30 to 60 days. And before that, please don't pull them together, write a bunch of letters about how much they mean to you and then tell them how much they've hurt you, tell them you love them and say, get the hell away from us now for 30 to 60 days. This is a mixed message to a brain that's not functioning properly at the time. Someone's not connected in the environment. Now, mind you, there's so many different avenues that affect this. This is not a cookie-cutter, one-size-fits-all podcast. I am not that naive, people. There are outliers and those that it helps. I simply wanted to talk about the history of how we got here, the young science that which we are, because, well, in 1700, someone believed that if you were depressed, well, that was demon number whatever. That's not long ago. Religion is sort of a left seed to psychology. Perhaps why religion still has such a stronghold today on so many. It also has been proven in research to, well, be a believer, because honestly, research shows you. (laughs) 
I'm going to be telling a lot more about the history of mental health because the more I think we can understand where it came from, how it got here, well, I think we can understand why we're choosing newer paths these days and why so many are screaming for different avenues like decriminalization of cannabis and use of psychedelics. I'm for that. Open the floodgates. But we have to learn from history. We cannot simply call the mentally ill, weak, unplugged, and forget them. For it's a massive amount of us, if not all of us in our lives, will experience some sort of mental health implication in our lives. Most of you know someone where it's been detrimental to theirs. So I would tell you, don't lock them up. Don't put them in an asylum. Don't put them in the system. The system will just help convince them they are diseased-ridden, and it's not their fault. This enables a person. This takes away the idea of hope to change. You become subservient on the medications. We know this, but again, perhaps the cognitive rampage is nothing more than a conspiracy theory podcast spreading the ideas of misinformation when I tell you we are not. This is why I wanted to go into history. Because I can't help but go back and think about 1850 and the veterans and United States citizens walking around after shooting their own brethren on their own land. Moving from farms into cities during the Industrial Revolution, looking for work as things are changing. Well, what are we doing now? We're moving from actual handwork to AI doing that as we now have this device in our hands that are, does so much for us. We're leaving the farms, if you will. Well, we're leaving the cubicles. We're leaving the factories. That's what's happening right now. The AI revolution is changing. The technology revolution is changing us. You can forget the Enlightenment era. The Enlightenment era only realized that, hell, it's not demons. Well, I don't call that very enlightened. But we are at that same precipice. We are repeating ourselves in history, and we are not changing any approach. We still continue to lock people up for a shorter amount of time. Out of sight, out of mind. What do you say? I can't be an enabler, they tell you at those AA family meetings. I can't help or be there for you, they tell you. Well, for me, that's just a short-winded way of telling you you should be an asylum, locked and forgotten. We are repeating ourselves. The war veterans addicted to opiates, the housewives addicted to opiates, PTSD, We're repeating all of those same symptoms. But yet we don't change the pattern or the process. We continue to treat people the same way. Either you take the Republican stand and you call psychology garbage and you stand on your bootstraps saying, well, pick it up, we all get depressed, and you think bipolar means you're happy one day and sad the next. You're a moron. Then we have the left side saying, take care of it and pay everybody. Make sure everyone's okay and hey... If we got the excess, I think we could if someone can't help themselves, but we can't enable people. There is not simply black and white. There is gray area, and when we come to mental health, most of this is the gray area, and there's about 450 shades. But no one notices. We don't say anything until, well, it knocks on your door, until depression says hello, until someone you know says goodbye. Then we start to wake up. So as I read through history even more and more, you see the Europeans in 872 couldn't even fathom how they could treat these people as human beings in the Islamic culture. They were lunatics. It's been foreign to people and it still is. You've seen mental health act and awareness passed after another, but still yet the stigma exists. People are denied the idea to real help, real help. Instead, we are... Hit with the bait and switch. You got a disease. Take these pills. Get used to it for life. We are repeating the same things. Jails have once again become shelters. This is the same thing that happened in 1285. The same thing that was happening in the 1800s and the 1600s. Jails had become shelters and those that were not in jail were hiding in monasteries. And we have the same issues. Jails have become shelters. As I read earlier, nearly 16% of all people in jails or prison are severely, keyword, mentally ill. One in three that are homeless are severely mentally ill. But yet, what do you do? You say, I'm not giving you a dollar. Get it together. 
You see, this stigma has been put on that, and it's young. You see, the stigma exists because people were locked up, out of sight, out of mind. There was nothing but the movies and old tales to talk about asylums, to say how wicked they were. And the truth is, no one saw it. People just dropped off their loved ones and walked away. So, if no one's really even seen it till about the 1900s, when we really start to pay attention to it until it's, well, hit home with you, when... War has touched your home, when poverty has touched your home, when loss and depression and illness and brain damage has touched your family, we start to notice in the 1900s and say, whoa, what is happening here? What is depression? What is anxiety? And those that don't, and those that lack the competent, competence dismiss it as being, well, psychology mumbo-jumbo. As we reveal history, I think we reveal the path that we're on. See, I think many times we are living our lives, our generation. We don't really understand what path that we're on until really it's over. And the generation that comes after us will be the generation will naming us. But if we can pause for a minute and look back and learn from history, see where we are. Forget the fighting. Forget the abandoning. Forget the magic pill that may show up one day because it's not here now. I commend those that are working on ways to try to find that. Although my mama told me if something's too good to be true, it probably is. We can learn from history. We can make different decisions and changes. It's new to many people. These ideas of mental disturbances. And I would tell you that perhaps it's not the individual, but yet it's the society that's sick. And if this society continues to repeat itself in this cycle, then I may just wage my bets that I'm correct. That perhaps the society is sick and the individuals are merely the symptoms of a sick society. The history that we create today and tomorrow and last week will be the history that, well, echoes at least for a generation or so about what we did about mental health awareness. The duality that we have versus preventative and reactive care. Well, those bank accounts don't even stack up close. Trillions are made on reactive health care. Millions of lives are lost on reactive health care. Millions more are trapped in the chemical incarceration web in the process we call the mental health system today. It's almost been broken since the day we built it. It was built on the foundations of those people are mad and lunatics and crazy and they have demons and should be locked away. We didn't even try to understand them. And do we really now? The truth is, is we really have to understand ourselves. And even then, you will not arrive to a place of full understanding. I made that word up. But if we don't change and get off this path, we will derail this train. You see, we can get deeper into the conspiracies and political choices that physicians' unions decided to do in the 1970s and pull together and start making some changes. One of those changes that needed to take place was, at the time, a physician could not prescribe a narcotic to get someone off of a narcotic. It seems rather logical to me. Well, at the time... The Physicians Union was looking for a state to control. The population of Florida, the demographic of the population of Florida, seemed to match those to where there's a lot of doctors here. This made the Physician Union strong here in the state of Florida over time. Matter of fact, they don't even get along with their nurses. The Nurses Union and the Physician Unions fight like crazy. Nurse practitioners want the right to prescribe and do other things, just like psychologists. Great, that's what we need. More people writing more narcotics saying they won't be the ones to abuse the system, sure. And really, the doctors don't want that, want that to happen because it takes money out of their pockets. 
Took them about 30 years, and they changed the law in the state of Florida that you could prescribe a narcotic to get someone off a narcotic. And, well, you all know the pill mill story. Pill mills popped up left and right. Pain centers and pain specialists. Pain, pain, pain. As if you're supposed to walk around in life and feel nothing. We are an evolving species. You could work on your biomechanics, but that's another story. So as they changed that and the pill mills popped up, addiction, well, you see it. The epidemic starts, but yet the state of Florida is making trillions of dollars treating patients on Medicare and Medicaid with this process of treatment that I call chemical incarceration, which is get you off their pills, off your pills, put you on theirs. But see, those copays eventually add up to get expensive. Well, that's why heroin got real cheap. Get a bag, 20 bucks, no problem. And see, the real problem is, it's not the idea of Suboxone and trading out these self, or these harm reduction drugs, as I talked about pretty stiffly. You see, most of the overdose deaths come from mixing drugs where someone either is on another or mixes it with something like fentanyl or is on Suboxone and says fucking tries to go for it anyway and crosses over. A lot of issues happen and most of the ODs, the majority, are mixing, not from just taking. So as pain pills became part of the prescription regimen to fight mental health disorders, Kalatopins collided with Paxil, Zoloft, Lithium, on down the line combined with, I've heard so many psychiatrists tell me the different mix of what they called their silver bullet for bipolar. Still guessing. We know so little of the brain, but yet we brag about medications that affect the brain. Arrogantly, we march forward, screaming, science must be the answer. I'm not saying it's not, but... The illusion of your physician treating you with a pill to help you with depression... Sounds good, doesn't it? And we've bought into the Magic Pill Society. I've been asked numerous times in recovery, what's the pill for alcoholism? We have been trained and converted to believe that that's what help means. I'm going to walk into the history on part two of the present day, of how the Florida medical model of treatment and the physicians union and the insurance companies devised a plan in a way to soak up millions and millions of dollars taxpayers' dollars, that is, and create customers for life. Many of you may be their customers now. The point is, this doesn't have to be a conspiracy or a plan. It doesn't have to be proven that this was set out to be some certain way. The point is, it is this way. And hopefully as we continue and venture further on this cognitive rampage, now into episode 201, We'll learn some more about the history of what mental health really means. Where it came from. We're going to bring up more names. A lot of guys and girls I left out of this history adventure of walking through. But I wanted to give you a snapshot of how young this field really is. And why there's so many disconnects. Why so many, well, ignore it, brush it off until it hits home. You may know why we cycle. The opiate epidemic is nothing new. Shell shock and PTSD now are nothing new. There's a new revolution happening at this moment. We're just a part of that change. Most of us won't even get to see what that change is, but we need to make change now in mental health. It can't be a talking point. Mental health and dumping dollars into a broken system can no longer be politician talking points. Talking points don't change history and they won't change our future. The next episode I'm going to walk through 
the 1970s up into 2018. And I'll flash back to some of this history. And I'll bring up some new history about certain people that, well, stuck out to me over time. I'll tell you why I think Freud was a badass. And why I think Albert Ellis was the first psychological gangster. But we're also going to walk through the DSM. Trying to give you some things that you could note about right now that it, you, maybe you could look up. Because I may not go into too much detail as I go on. So look up the history of the DSM. We're on, we're on the DSM-5 now. This essentially is the Bible of mental health disorders. We're going to talk about the history of the DSM, the changes of the DSM, how many diagnoses came in and out. I want you to think about this in the DSM-3. Transsexual was a mental health disorder. It changes, and society has influence over what we call mental health. The last thought I want you to ponder before we leave this walk down memory lane. Is if it happened to you, or someone you love, when I say it, I mean mental health. Call that addiction. Call that something. What would you do? Where would you go? Really? And look up, or listen to this, about what they used to do. See if you can draw some similarities there. I appreciate you hanging out tonight. I'm really looking forward to getting to part two. Tell you some real good history about how people changed with what they said, what could happen and what could be. See, partly why I love this field so much is I realize it's full of theories and observers. And it's a young field. So through theory, observation, research, and repeat research, even on yourself, you too can add to the history of mental health. <laughs>